everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Glad Trad Podcast. My name is Jordan Pacheco. And I'm Rudy Carlos. We keep doing this. We keep kidnapping Nick Cavazos at the traditional Thomist. You can see him over there hiding. Here's something funny real quick, Nick, before you say hello. I'm looking at you here. Isn't this weird to Zoom, but I'm sure that it's going to show up like this. So our, our poor audience is saying, <laughs> how you doing, Nick? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing really well. Good. What you been up to? It's been a hot second since you've been on. I know. Honestly, I've been pretty just slammed with the like madness that is philosophy, right? The madness that is philosophy major. And so I've been pretty much just busy, just writing papers and then teaching for the most part, which has been pretty fun. You've been and teaching? So I have been. So yeah, I've been actually asked by uh, the uh, parish that I'm a part of to teach catechism class to college students and to adults, which is a lot of fun, uh, as well as I also teach sixth graders uh, at a parish near as well so between like juggling both of those um it keeps me pretty busy still also with uh you know i might have mentioned it one of the last couple of episodes but still involved with the thomistic institute mm-hmm. and so between all three of those school and then just wanting to like live a normal life it's been pretty busy <laughs> yo dude that's same for rudy too rudy's rudy's uh rudy's getting out of town yeah i'm I, you know big news people i'm moving out of california I made it. You made I it. made it out. It's going to be like that movie Escape from New York, except it's going to be California. <laughs> right. And yeah. Um, yeah, it was very providential, really. I mean, everything, everything is the hand of God. And um, we had been praying for a very long time to get out of here, to find work that would allow us um, not only to leave here, but also to be able to provide for Ashley so that she doesn't have to work you know, and, and stay at home. She really fell into her, voca- her vocation and decided, you know, like, this is something I want to do. I want to stay home and I want to stay with my baby. And I agree. I think that's great. And God provided. So we're so, so thankful. So we're moving to Houston. Ooh, better than Austin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to meet Nick halfway there. Nick, you said something about painted churches. So I'm excited for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to hang out. Like, there, so it's actually funny. I may as well mention this. You guys have serious fans here in Texas, right? Oh, yeah. I'm really? not joking. You guys have serious fans. So I, I go That's to cool. right a diocesan TLM, but sometimes on the weekends, I like to go down to San Antonio, just south of me, to the Society Chapel. And in the Society Chapel, I've had people walk up to me and they're like, oh, how you doing? You're Nick Cavazos. And, you know, sometimes I don't know if they're referring to like either my show or uh, my one episode with pints with Aquinas from yesteryear mm-hmm. and well, actually more than not come up and say, no, I actually saw you on the glad trad podcast. Uh, and <laughs> you know, I started following you since then. I had a guy literally yesterday who came up to me and was just like, oh yeah. Like you're friends with Jordan and Rudy. I watched their show. I saw you on it. And I'm wow. like, that's cool. He, wow. He's the, he's actually the professional photographer for the Bishop in my diocese. He watches your guys' show. So. Oh, that's incredible. Well, well, shout out to to him and to all of our Texan fans and friends. Uh, man, praise God. That's that's a really nice piece of news. Um, we're we're really grateful to we we have a lot of people that watch us different parts of the empire, and it's kind of fun. They write yeah. in sometimes and do all that kind of stuff. So that's really cool that like there's people in New Mexico that have said hello, people in Colorado that have said hello, people in Texas clearly that said hello. So that's awesome. And clearly that's Amazing. nice too, because people know that we're approachable guys, you know, we're not like standoffish or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> rad treads yeah rad treads mm-hmm. well you know you could sometimes be like, we could be cool rad treads i don't even that's something funny let's let me ask you boys okay what is your most because this is like a very trad chat episode we have a lot of like fun ideas but you know when we're all three together we don't shut up uh, <laughs> what is what is your most rad trad position what is like that whether it's like Ooh. a black pill or it's like <laughs> so red pill to like even your oh, audience boy. you know like you're gonna get me fired jordan Oh, that's right. <laughs> no, no, you're, oh, man. Nick's yeah, thinking about it. So I'm going to jump right in. Mm-hmm. All right. My raddest, traddest take is that most of the canonizations uh, after Vatican II are probably invalid or not invalid, but just kind of like mm, questionable. Questionable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're valid because of the, you know, the church has declared them saints, but it's just questionable, right? Because, oh, well, they take it away, the devil's advocate, um, 
most of the canonizations happen to be popes who were involved in Vatican II. So it's a canonization of the council, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that sort of thing. So uh, that, mm-hmm. that's my raddest take. Yeah. The easiest way to become a saint now is to be Pope, ironically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Say you love Vatican II. Just say it. I just, I love it. Oh, it's so man. good. A man can only have so much love for such a beautiful thing. Nick, Look at the springtime we're in. Oh yeah. I don't, oh gosh. Oh man. Honestly. Yeah. Rudy kind of stole mine. Not going to lie, but I agree <laughs> with sorry, him. 100. <laughs> no, you're, you're good. Cause I totally agree with you. I, I would say like, it's, they're very questionable. Um, probably my hottest take. Um, and I've actually shared this with my audience, but I, I believe that the new mass is valid when said with proper form, matter, minister, and intention, all that, but is illicit. And I base this off of the principles of Thomas Aquinas in his treatise on law and a bunch of other things. But I think that would be like the spicy thing, which, you know, arguably I'd say that that's not really that spicy because that's just like the classic position of the society. And let's just be honest, they're just the oldest trads around. So (laughs) (laughs) Lord, that I have, mine is, I'm going to go a slightly different direction. Um, So my wife has decided to wear nothing but skirts and dresses with some, with some notable exceptions. Right. And I heard a priest at Carmel say this. He was like, how do you know um, when a man's cross-dressing? Uh, he puts on a dress, right? Puts on a skirt, he puts on his high heels and he goes out. How do you know if a, when a woman's cross-dressing? And he said this to a group of women and it's funny on the tape, it got quiet for a second and then it got so raucous. <laughs> like, like you can hear the walls shake. Wow. Um, I know, that's interesting though. So I think that, um, except again, with with some some exceptions perhaps um based upon very specific activity um pants are cross-dressing on women women should wear dresses and skirts and men Mm -hmm. by contrast should try their best to look presentable and masculine and you know and that sort of nature um and the part of like the modernist breakdown of course was how um in marxist persuasion countries you'll notice that the one of the first things that goes is the distinction of men and women there usually is like a unisex kind of thing we think of mao zedong's famous kind of chinese costume um this is the same with what we're seeing now in the secular culture that we have said everyone wears pants and t-shirts and um and we pretend that women aren't women and they don't have a sort of beauty and modesty and reverence to that and that men aren't men and they can they can wear whatever they want just slip yourself to that i think Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. Do you yeah. guys know the first uh, woman uh, in public office in Congress that wore uh, pants? Hillary Clinton <laughs> when she was when she was first well, that, elected. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh-huh. That's, that's I think they're called culottes. Mm-hmm. I hate I hate lady suits. <laughs> Can I just say that right now, ladies? I hate lady suits. It's pretty. It's pretty cringe to be yeah, honest they, with you. It's very you know, I just think like there are like you can wear like business casual dresses or those things exist, but like lady like power suity kind of things. Like, and you'll notice this difference, right? Like Hillary Clinton wears those. Um, Kamala Harris wears those. You know who the greatest twist is? Every once in a while, like I really despise, especially like the policies of AOC, but occasionally she dresses like a woman, and I'm like, that's even worse. That's some Jezebel stuff right there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, think about the suit, right? This is this is a moment. Um, who's the guy that you watch? Um, what Kevin Samuels? Kev, this is a Kev, Kevin Samuels moment. <laughs> all right, if you know who that is, uh, I wouldn't recommend it. It's kind of it's kind of it's. I would, I would as a Catholic, bad language. Yeah, he, well, I mean, come on, like I'd recommend something bad language. What are you kidding me? <laughs> I don't know. He blasphemes, so I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, but. yeah, that's fair. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that one on a shelf for a second. Anyway, he. He, this is a Kevin Samuels moment, right? He's like a a, a guy doesn't like feminism. He's like uh, I don't know how you he's, how would you describe him? He's though? a commentator on the breakdown of men and women, especially in the black community. And every kind of community has different sort of issues that are at the forefront. I mean, the whole society does. But with Kevin Samuels, he talks a lot about how um, black women in particular are uh, are kind of looked at as apart from their men, which other races if you will if you believe in that kind of thing uh don't really actually have so for instance black women marry at a rate of 25 percent. so one out of four black women you know will be married the average black woman weighs more than the average black man um and yet the average black woman 
wants more out of men than what the average black man can essentially provide in terms of income mm-hmm. and status and all that kind of stuff. So Kevin Samuels is, is, I would say, is very interesting and I would say probably very good, refreshing cultural commentary, especially when it comes to, to African-Americans. Got it. That's a good explanation. Yeah. So this is a Kevin Samuels moment, right? You were discussing women wearing suits. Well, why are women wearing suits in the first place? It's because the suit is, it, it represents power. It represents authority. It represents leadership, right? And when you see a woman do that, it's, it seems like a cheap, a cheap sort of uh, impression of what that really means, right? And so, yeah, when you see a woman in a, a what do they call it? In a what, like a power suit thing? A power suit or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> We're not power talking suit. about Samus from like Metroid, power okay? Suit. Not a power suit. <laughs> oh, right. All right. <laughs> We're talking about we're talking about women dressing like men. It's just, it's off-putting, right? It's just like, I don't know. It's, ah, it seems wrong. It's just wrong. It's like something in your mind is telling you that's not natural. Yeah. I mean, and again, it's funny because ironically, like our lady, the Queens of the world, all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, you can look very powerful and commanding in dresses, certainly. Um, but also what's funny is uh, Nick, you might've read this, right? You ever read GK Chesterton's, little thing on petticoat governments is what he calls it um, no no that's all interesting. think about this all serious this is see this is this is where the feminists get wrong all serious business on earth ever conducted is conducted in a in a flowing gown of some sort judges what do they dress in priests what do they dress in so he talks about petticoat government and the problem with at his time and our time especially is that by shirking off the idea that like oh skirts and femininity and these things are inferior or, or the idea of like long flowing robes don't symbolize any power literally like the kingly robes what do those look like you know it's like kings look cool when they're, they're in their full regalia not just when they're in like you know just like a pair of slacks or something mm-hmm. so, yeah no absolutely yeah so that's interesting i like i like these spicy takes you know i think i think our audience can handle it our audience our audience has some very spicy ideas every once in a while. Nick, I want to ask you about kind of with the society's position, because this is always a question I have. So if the if the new mass is valid but illicit, what is that line of culpability for a Catholic that attends? Because like I know, you know, my family is all Novus Ordo, and I would I, the last their entire swaths of my family, I wouldn't dare presume a sort of judgment for attending the new mass just because I don't mm-hmm. know, it seems like inherent to me, like their love of, of Christ and the church seems so pure right so what does that what does that breakdown look like with the society's position Mm -hmm. yeah so basically how the society would approach the issue is it with culpability right we have to understand something depending on what it is really to its full extent we have to you know go and do the research we not to use kind of like charged language but like have a complete full conscience so to speak decision that needs to be made now again conscience is not the source of truth right? Kind of like our modern world says, it's just like, oh yeah. yeah, it's not the source of truth. It is that like element of the intellect in the faculty of the soul that can like figure out, okay, first principles and all of that. So it's, it's this principle, right? Inside the soul, inside of the intellect that helps to determine right and wrong. It's, it's also in tandem with this other principle called syndericis, which understands first principles. So basically, right, we have to use our five senses and take in information into our conscience and make good decisions. Um, Well, that being the case, when we're approaching any subject uh, of a moral matter, we have to look at, okay, is this something that is going to be positive for my soul or damaging to my soul? And we have to look at this when it comes to using our sight, when it is, okay, what's going on in front of me at these two different types of masses. We have to use, um, you know, also our sight, to take in what we're reading. That's why it's important to read books on this subject as well, not just to like read a blog or watch a video, but to actually like sit down and read the texts of the masses side by side. And then after that point, what the society will say is, okay, once you've studied this thing out, then you need to come to this conclusion of, okay, is this thing really at the end of the day, Protestantized or is it not? And I think that that's really the question that all of this hinges on is, is the new mass protestant or not because if you say it's not then the house of cards if you will falls down and you're just like okay 
this this debate has shifted from a potential doctrinal debate to we're just fighting over which mask is prettier, you know, which is a little bit more subjective, right? It's not it's not that it's not important, but it's a little bit more subjective. Mm -hmm. But if it is Protestantized, then that is something which is therefore dangerous because I mean this shouldn't be a spicy take to anyone on your show, but Protestantism is a heresy, right? And so we don't want it being infused or infected inside of the mass. So therefore the society will say like, if you know these, right, um, then you are not bound to go to the new mass. Um, so that, for instance, they will say that you're not, um, you can't fulfill your Sunday obligation truly at a mass in which, um, you know, our Lord won't be properly honored. And the honor is referring to like the Catholic faith properly being expressed because God gives us the faith. We give it back to him through the virtue of justice in the virtue of religion. And so therefore they're going to say, yeah, no, sorry, man, I don't think it really works. And so if that kind of makes sense, you know, you can apply that same standard when it comes to any and all moral issues, right? Whether it's something along the lines of like, how do I know I'm, I'm breaking say like the third commandment on Sundays? Like what does work and necessity really truly mean? Right. So you have to go and study these things out. So it's kind of the same principle, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that totally makes a lot of sense. And it, it really does hinge, like you said, on, on whether or not you're aware of these principles to begin with. <clears throat> Jordan, mm-hmm. you asked, like, what about your, your family? And, and I mean, I have friends, you know, who continue to go to the Nova Soto for some reason. I can't understand it. But at the same time, I don't think they're aware of the roots of the new mass. And so therefore their culpability is quite low compared to somebody who was aware of all of the different things that took place, the Protestantization of the mass, uh, the reason why certain things were omitted, uh, certain things were included, and they continue to go, that, for example, would increase their culpability um, because that mass is not giving due reverence to God. Right. I just, I guess my, my, my curiosity is about these things always stem from so for instance, like here's an analogy I've heard, right? So we say, we say like valid, but, uh, but illicit, right? We, we often think about with the Orthodox, right? But arguably, mm-hmm. wouldn't you say that the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, which is still there in Orthodox liturgy, like you could get theoretically, just because we have Byzantine connections, right? You could get the fullness of the Catholic faith at an Orthodox divine liturgy, although obviously they're, obviously they're schismatic. They don't, uh, they don't mm-hmm. acknowledge the supremacy of the chair of St. Peter. Um, mm-hmm. But so it's kind of interesting, like this this sort of debate, because um, I, I'm always I'm always just asking, like, is this something that is this something that's morally culpable? Is this is at the end of the day, like, if we say that there has been Protestantism injected into the mass, acceptable, but if it's still valid, right? If it's still transubstantiation, does the graces that flow even from the Novus Ordo change, like, what that degree of culpability is? How do how does the society or how do theologians debate that Mm -hmm. that's a really good question so in essence you guys might have heard this in your discussions with people on this issue but sometimes people will throw around the saying well at the end of the day the mass is the mass regardless of what you go to right and right i can understand to a certain degree what they're saying when they say the mass is the mass if you go to i think it's question 82 or 83 of the tertia pars of the summa thomas asks the question is the, is the mass of a wicked priest, does it bring the same amount of grace, if you will, that say a righteous priest does? And he says, okay, on one sense, all masses are the same because they are the death of Christ. But just because all masses are the same doesn't mean that it's necessarily pleasing to God. And two, it doesn't necessarily mean that the same amount of grace will flow. And so he gives some examples. He says, for instance, if there is a priest Right. And this was much more common in his day. But if there's a priest who lives, say, with a concubine, mm-hmm. right, that the graces right from his position of being an altar Christus are going to be way lower, if anything. Right. Because of the state of his soul in which he's offering the mass for the congregation, as opposed to, say, like, you know, a St. Jean Vianney or St. Padre Pio type. Right. Who's exceedingly holy and who goes into the tabernacle to make sacrifice. So the, there's a whole lot of factors that are in play. There's like the, the graces that are upon the priest, his merits, his holiness that bring a certain amount of grace, um, whether the priest is wicked or not, even if the faith is properly expressed. Right. For instance, you can look at, uh, you know, set of contests or these independent chapels and you can use them in the same light that you would say the Orthodox. Right. So the liturgy and the prayers, right, 
all good stuff, but the intention in the spirit in this thing is not good because they're also cutting themselves away in one sense of schism, which schism is just a, a sin against the virtue of charity that cuts themselves away from the chair of Peter, from that arc of Peter, if you will. And so there's a whole lot of things that have to be involved. And so when you look at, say, the society, you see, okay, we're not going to allow Protestantization in, mm. but at the same time, we recognize where Peter is, there is the church, as many of the fathers say. So therefore, we're not going to separate ourselves from the church, but in separating and not wanting to separate ourselves from the church, we also cannot separate ourselves away from the perennial teachings of the church, which clearly condemn elements of the new mass. And so, you know, they'll really point out three specific things. The presence of the priest being reduced from an altar Christus down to just a common minister, like, um, you know, basically organizing the people like a community organizer. Mm-hmm. To the removal of the sacrificial nature of the mass, chiefly in the offertory, being completely stripped out. Uh, and three, the lack of respect for our Lord inside the real presence of the Eucharist. And some people may say, like, how so? I don't understand. There's all these small details, especially as a server, I get to see from the fact that, at least in the rubrics of the new mass, the priest no longer has to keep his canonical digits together. He only, he, there's far less genuflections, mm-hmm. uh, right? In the old mass, every time the, the priest is about to pick up Christ, he genuflects. That's all been removed for the most part in the new mass. And then also another good example is the fact that, you know, when I, as a server, go up and ascend the altar, I have to get help father with the double ablutions, right? We're cleaning his fingers and then he consumes the liquid. All of this is removed away. And what is it replaced with? In common time lady being able to hand out the eucharist and you being able to receive in the hand like i just did a video on communion in the hand not too long ago and you what's fine what's interesting is that even in the early church where they're supposedly you know having communion in the hand everywhere if that's even the case some of the writings are like yeah if they would have received it in their palm they would have consumed it immediately there was no picking up with the fingers mm-hmm. and consuming our lord then and so when you take all these things into account the argument of the mass is the mass. Sure, in a very speculative, high sense, you can make that argument. But in another sense, you can't, you know. And so it's just a very complex issue that people really need to go and study. Yeah, what I'm kind of, <clears throat> I'm I'm just always kind of struck by, I call it the great divorce. We call it the great divorce. And this isn't something that's happened in the church that should not have happened. And the problem is that because the church in its full capacity is it hasn't dealt with it, I would say. It's just swept it under the rug. This has become a fight for the lady. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like, you could read yourself into this part, this part. But there's, you know, so much swaths of the church's history was like, the mass was the mass. You didn't have this sort of weird infighting. You didn't have Bugnini writing things on a napkin. You didn't have sort of <laughs> Protestantism. And it's, it's really sad because I, I see a lot of, the effects of the new mass, obviously. Um, I mean, and and the church won't doesn't want to admit it because it would be freaking bedlam if it did. It would do some good for sure. We theorized if we were pope, like how would we, how do we essentially write the rudder if it was completely just up to us? Obviously, you can tell God and Our Lady is working by how much the modernists hate the Latin mass, and I think that there's obviously something there as a result. Um, I'm always just, you know, I'm always just, it's always interesting because I don't want, you know, it's so it's so easy, I think, for for us to intellectualize and also, and rightly so, and and from the will of the heart, realize like what the true mass looks like. Um, but man, you know, it's like, we just want to be careful. Like there's so many Catholics that don't have that chance, you know? And mm-hmm. so it's, it's kind of weird. Like we've all gone through a phase where it was like, is the society in schism? Like how easy it was. The, oh, the heresy. And it's like, well, what does that actually mean? Oh, that's, that's not true. Even by the um, canon law, Lefebvre's act is not in and of itself a schismatic act. There's been plenty of stuff written down. And mm. it's like, what sucks about this is like, these are all really great, important topics. <laughs> and the wrong people who are having lively spirited conversations about them at the end of the day. That's the thing that frustrates me more than anything else. The whole Novus Ordo, mass the ages kind of thing it's like man like this would be all well and good the only difference is like as lady like we just produce the babies and vote with our feet like it's mm-hmm. up to the church to be the safe guardian of tradition the the traditionist custodes 
and uh, <laughs> and actually, <laughs> actually shepherd these things. It's something you just said, Jordan. You know, like you you've distinguished the uh, these sorts of high level conversations, right? That people are having on blogs, lady, just in general. I mean, like you just run into it at a, after mass. Really, I mean, people just talk about things that are controversial, like the SSPX or the new mass or that sort of thing. It's just, it's so commonplace right now, right? But I, f- I think that we're only doing that because the lady have, have, the lady have been shoved into the corner, right? And, and they have their back against the wall and they don't know what to do. They're looking at their leadership. They're seeing a dereliction of duty from there. Oftentimes, there's obviously good bishops, uh, good cardinals and that sort of thing, but they're few and far in between. And so they're seeing their leadership and they're saying, wow, what's going on? This is crazy. They look at it even on a parish level and they see even my priest is not talking about the certain things that my child needs to hear. Mm. Like, this is crazy. So they're taking it upon themselves to do this sort sort of work. And it's, it's crazy that we have to do it. It just feels so inappropriate, but I think that's just the time that we're in, uh, which reminds me of Nick. Cause Nick, you're, you're, you're reading the Summa and you're informing yourself every day. You're teaching people. That's incredible. I mean, like uh, what, what, what inspires you to do that? That's just so, I mean, like to, to, to really settle down and do a speed run of the Summa. I mean, like nobody, nobody really does that. It's a very rare thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I like to joke with people. I just don't have a girlfriend. Lots of time, but <laughs> wait, okay, um, wait. If, well, congratulations, Nick, because I got the perfect match for you. <laughs> oh boy! I mean, if you actually do, then why not? But um, um, the reason I do fundamentally, I actually there's a there's a part where I forget the question, but Matt Frad, when we when I was on his show, basically asked, uh, you know, why, like, what makes me tick, if you will, and I told him really at the end of the day, it's, and I didn't even know this at the time, but it's a very Dominican answer. It's truth at the end of the day, you know, veritas is the motto of the Dominican order. It's just Mm -hmm. truth. And I just desire truth. And that's something, right. That's all inside all of our hearts at the end of the day is like, we're made to know love and serve God because he is truth. We're made to know this truth. And if you think about it, because of sin, original sin and ignorance being, you know, injected, if you will, into the intellect and like the passions disordered and the will weakened and all of that. Because of that, we're kind of beings, if you will, walking around, not really living life as it's meant to be lived. We're kind of living in like this weird fog nether world where, you know, everyone's kind of just trying to fight to get on top of each other. But I look at all of this, I look at like the corporate world. I look at just the economic world and just kind of the rat race, if you will, uh, that's the American dream. And right. There's nothing, there are obviously good merits even in that, but I look at that and that's just not satisfying for me. There just has to be more to this life than um, just working nine to five and that's it. Um, Right. And right. If you're called to that, right. As a dad going off and doing that, then, you know, absolutely good, but we're all made to know love and serve God. We're all made to study truth. And so I chose the Summa because fundamentally Pope St. Pius X says that it is the antidote to modernism and modernism has been injected into every level of the church. First, you got to know what modernism is, right? There's a lot of people who don't know what it is and just throw that term out there. So first you got to know what it is and then you got to know the cure, if you will. And the cure is absolutely Thomism, 110%. That's, that's beautiful. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, I, I will never forget the fact that we all want to inherit the faith of our ancestors, the faith that connects us directly to Christ and the apostles. Um, we're not going anywhere as laity. And as traditional Catholics, like I think that you have to have a level of submitting yourself to the authority of that the church has in its structure, but ultimately to God, you know. And it, it's it's just so devastating, I think, that there's always been evil, there's always been corruption in the church. Um but now, as I'm looking at it, all I can really see is, you know, we're in kind of the fight of our life. I mean, there is a real consorted effort to sever us from the faith of our ancestors. Um, I'm, I'm constantly thinking of that very simple line the woman from the well said, you know, our ancestors worship on this mountain. Like, that's why she's there. That's why she's there. And 
it's it's kind of mind-boggling to me except you know that it's the forces of evil i mean that's the end of the day that why would they want to sever us from something you know on a secular perspective suppose that like hierarchy or those who are aligned with evil suppose they were just secularists you know okay well these people have children support their parishes and give money cool you know like that's not really a thing except of course their desire is truth their line's kind of the problem um so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really i mean i'm hopeful for the future the reason why i mean rudy and i the reason why we're, we're all three of us are glad trads you know there's a lot of goodness in the world and um th- i always say that things get better worse before they get better but that doesn't mean that they never get better um i wanted to kind of pinpoint something kind of shift gears a little bit um but there's something kind of inside the pursuit of truth that perked my interest and i've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now but as as we kind of look at christianity in the 21st century it's very interesting to me that um oftentimes what was true to our ancestors or just the express kind of thing of our ancestors has to be flipped backwards nowadays right well, the problem they say with the um, with the old mass was that it was too rigid. It was too much emphasis on the sacrifice. We need to open the, the medieval walls, right, of the church and all that kind of crap. Um, with the decline of Thomism, especially in the latter half of the 20th century, there was a lot of scholarly critique on the historicity of the Gospels, on the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, on the Catholic sacraments. I mean, just a lot of uh, understandably protestant attacks at times right just devoid of the faith and for me i've noticed one that's interesting one thing that's worth exploring is that um you know we always go back to genesis we always talk about you know the modern era love talking about genesis and does genesis fit into an evolutionary spectrum and how do we square that circle and all that kind of stuff right what's interesting to me is that it seems to me that the church in times before looked at Genesis with some very clear historical understanding. Um, I, I'm going to step away from like six, you know, six day creation, like 6,000 year old earth. I'm talking just about the persons of Adam and Eve themselves, you know, that Adam and Eve were the first man, the first woman that God created them out of clay. I will add them out of clay and blew life into his nostrils, then Eve from his rib and that they were our first parents. And that it's through them, as the scriptures say, that original sin and sin and death entered the world and therefore christ restores us as the new adam um but i've been seeing this kind of contemporary critique of of looking at genesis in that sort of way um the biggest one out there and you know we're not a channel that i think we do very fair critiques of different sorts of things right but um bishop baron who is probably you'd say probably outside of cardinal raymond burke the probably the most influential english-speaking prelate you know um Bishop Barron is very interesting because I've been watching some of his videos and I'd heard him say this a couple of times where he was like, you have to look at Genesis as, um, I think he calls it theological saga. And some of what he said seems to cast doubt on the the historical authenticity of Adam and Eve as first parents. Um, And so maybe we could talk about that just a little bit. Like as, as Catholics, do we have a basis for the belief of Adam and Eve as our first parents, because it seems to me that if we deny that sort of thing, then that completely collapses how original sin entered the world. Their entire lines of the Bible, which I think to cease makes sense. Um, and the, the kind of more into the faith I get, the more I realize like it's important for us to have a bulwark of ancestry, certainly Christ's ancestry, but certainly our, our other patriarchs ancestry to point back to Adam and Eve. Yeah, 100% fundamentally. I think, you know, Every theology that's out there is a system, right? Theology at the end of the day is not a subject, but it's a science. And when you have a a chink in the armor, if you will, you can have a whole science collapse. And you're absolutely right. The issue of whether Adam and Eve were real people or if they're just, you know, allegorical really does touch upon the nature of original sin because it's the thing of it this way. If Adam and Eve are just, mere symbols, right? And that's all they are. They're kind of just like stand-ins, if you will, for just humanity. Then where, what was the original sin at the end of the day? What was it? How does original sin get passed on? Is it through the promulgation of the species? Is it not through the promulgation of the species? Um, How does it happen? And so you really run into a lot of um, tough issues. Have either of you guys heard of the uh, 20th century theologian, Taylor du Chardin? That last name Chardon ring a bell? I've I've heard that Tealhard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Chardin, yeah, yeah. 
I've heard that mm-hmm. before. Yeah. He was he was a, a modernist theologian who uh, denied specifically the dogma of original sin. And what he taught was is that man is, um, you know, he was he was definitely kind of like a pseudoscientist, but he believed that man was as you know society and as time went along we were progressively becoming better and better kind of following kind of like an evolutionary train of thought, if you will, becoming better and better until we finally reach what he calls the Omega point, right? Kind of like this superhuman uh, time, so to speak, when like everything in society will be just, you kind of see a lot of liberals, right? A lot of leftoids, if you will, like they kind of believe this, that yeah, like if we just purge society from all of the racism and misogyny and homophobia that we can just like reach this Omega point utopia, he kind of applied this to theology, but he started with, right, there is no true Adam and Eve, and original sin doesn't exist. And it was through that line of mentality, if you will, that you get a lot of the doctrinal stuff that comes later on in the council and in like the post-conciliar reforms. Hmm. So w- was he at the council or was, was that just kind of like the dominant thought that like pervade over? Mm-hmm. He wasn't sure at the he was council. There. Oh, no, he wasn't? I, I don't think he was there, but... It you know what's interesting is to this day, the people who quote him most, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis, all quote him in their encyclicals, and it's really interesting because all of his works are were completely censored, right? Uh, the great Dominican uh, Reginald Guerlou Lagrange just went after him, just like uh, in a scathing way, trying to critique all of these things because fundamentally. Um, when it comes to this issue of a real Adam and a real Eve, I believe you can, first of all, prove it from just reason alone, from philosophy. It's just like, this is just basic causality, right? <laughs> every, with every effect, there is a cause, mm-hmm. and the cause is greater than the effect. And you got to figure out, okay, well, somewhere down the line, there had to be two humans, right, that started this all. You know, you can't really get around that fact. Um but then with that, you can also prove it from the teaching of the church in the context of faith, right? And so how much have you guys looked at when it comes to this? Because I know I had some stuff to you, Jordan, but like how much have we looked into this? Uh, not, not terribly heavily for me. Um, I'm, just kind of, I'm just kind of flying by, by gut reaction. Yeah, exactly. Kind of like Same a historical here. perspective, gut reaction. Also, also deeply theological, obviously, because again, like, the scriptures speak about Adam and Eve as literal, um, mm-hmm. you know, and what's funny is so with um, with the idea of like Genesis being read as his, uh, a theological saga, um, I'm not saying again, like I, I don't quite know. I, I understand obviously that every book of the genre, of the Bible has genre, um, you know, mm-hmm. you don't read Song of Songs the same way that you might read um, Exodus or you might read the Gospel of John. But it's interesting to me that like as Catholics, we pour ourselves out so heavily in the historical nature of Jesus, of Mary, of, of the apostles, of the patriarchs is very important. And then like, but suddenly like we, we become completely uh, succumbing to like the world's theories when it comes to everything in Genesis. Oh, well, it's just poetry. Our ancestors understood it as poetry. Well, is that true? It doesn't seem to me that they understood it as poetry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, that's the, well, that's the thing, right? I mean, you, you look at uh, if you look at certain things as uh, heroic poetry, as I think Bishop Barron calls it, um, it, it diminishes the the actual fact that we are born with original sin, and it does that because it puts into question whether or not these two people existed. And so if you make that, that sort of, uh, if you accept that premise, it's very easy for you to go down a rabbit hole and say, well, maybe that teaching of the church is not correct. And after that, it's just, you know, it's, it's like a turkey shoot, right? And you, you just decide to pick and choose whatever you want. And you say, well, this isn't true. That doesn't make sense to me, but you're not informed. You're, you're denying a, a particular reality that we are born with original sin. We had original parents and this is the consequence of their action. You know, uh, one of the consequences being childbirth pains during childbirth. That's, I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, and then, so here, here's another connection, right? Cause I just, I just went from there to childbirth. Right. Well, then you, you look at um, Mary 
our blessed mother. And then it's easy for those people to say, well, she probably had childbirth, but that's not true because our blessed mother, and we're coming up to the immaculate conception on Wednesday, an awesome feast day. Uh, but our blessed mother didn't experience that. Why? Because she was born free. She was created without original sin. Right. So it's easy for people to disconnect certain realities, certain truths. Like you were talking about Nick Veritas, like you, you disconnect yourself from truth and it's, it's destructive. It's really like insidious the way that this is, you know, cause you, you think it's really innocent. You, you, you say, oh, I don't really believe this, but then, you know, your faith suffers because you're, you're not, you're disconnecting yourself from the truth. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. So what is, so is it, you said this a little bit in the pre-show, but like, what is the actual church's teaching on, let's start with Adam and Eve first. Like what, what is it as Catholics? What are we bound to? What are we not bound to? Yeah, that's a great question. So from what I can find uh, a good book for anyone who's like really interested in the subject of like, what should Catholics absolutely believe in? What is more of a free opinion is going to be uh, two books I'd recommend. One is just called Denzinger, uh, the fundamentals of Catholic dogma. You can find this actually for free online. If you guys want, I can uh, send it to you guys and you can put it in the show notes. Yes, please. Uh, that's one. And then two, this one I've never seen on a PDF. I think you have to buy, but it's just called, um, I think it's called like the fundamentals of Catholic dogma by Ludwig Ott. And uh, what's interesting about uh, this is it categorizes all the different beliefs of the church into what you're supposed to believe and what's a little bit more of a free opinion. So what I could find is, first and foremost, when it comes to what is a Catholic supposed to believe on this subject, we can look at uh, specifically the uh, Fourth Lateran Council, which was in 1215. This was, again, a council that was against the Albigensians and the Waldensian heretics as a Dominican fan, right? That's what they were fighting against. And you can find this in number 428 of Denzinger. And this is what the council said. This was on the subject of the Catholic faith. They first start off with this profession of faith and they say, we firmly, firmly we believe and we confess that the true God is one alone, eternal, immense, unchangeable, et cetera, et cetera. So they're using that dogmatic language of, we believe, we confess, we affirm, et cetera. But then they go down and they continue and they say this, we believe first that one being of all, referring to God, is the creator of all visible and invisible things of the spiritual and of the corporeal, so physical things, of of non-physical things, who by his own omnipotent power at once from the beginning of time created every creature from nothing, spiritual and corporeal, namely angelic, mundane, and finally humans were constituted as it were alike of spirit and body. What does all of that mean? Well, uh, Ott, right, he, this theologian, Ludwig Ott, he categorizes and he basically says two things from this. He says, number one, uh, we believe that God created man out of nothing. And Ludwig Ott says that this is something which is defeat, meaning that you have to believe as a Catholic. You don't have an opinion, right? God made man out of nothing. Um, and so that brings into a whole lot of question of, okay, well, you, maybe you could kind of get an evolutionary theory to work. I mean, but it's going to be a lot more narrow as opposed to um, just kind of just accepting the whole uh, belief system entirely. But then the second thing he says is we believe that all humans descend from two humans, right? All humans descend from two humans. And he says that this is what's called a sentencia certa, which basically, for those of you guys who want to know, we believe things in hierarchy, right? There are beliefs that we hold in preeminence, like Christ is the son of God, mm-hmm. the immaculate conception, right? These beliefs that we're all bound to believe. Uh, you could call these things the dogmas of the faith, if you will. And then way at the bottom is going to be stuff like efficacy of the St. Andrew's novena, right? It's technically <laughs> a free opinion, right? If you disagree with it, you're not thrown out of the church. You could even say that potentially about some apparitions. Um, you're not strictly bound to believe these things, but you know, they are pious beliefs. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in the middle. Well, sentencia search is one of these things, which is if you deny this, you fall into the mortal sin of error against the faith. So number one, we are bound to believe that God created 
everything and all human beings out of nothing. And we are too also bound to believe that we all descend, all humanity descend from two parents. Now, the last thing I could find was that Pope Saint, or well, he should be a saint, Pope, I think, blessed or venerable, I think he's venerable, Pius the Twelfth, right? The, the the last truly based Pope, I would argue anyway. Um, <laughs> so he, um alert. Yeah, exactly. Holocaust <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, denier. But, exactly um he got me um but he he taught in his great encyclical and i recommend if you just wanted to study number one the subject of all the problems in the church go read the document humane generis he talks about the new theology neo-modernism all of that he also talks about evolution and if you go to paragraph number 36 of humane generis he basically says like look we are bound to believe that god made us out of nothing and that we all descend from two parents. And then he says, you know, evolution in the strictest sense doesn't necessarily contradict the faith. However, you need to be careful because like unbridled, it could lead to lots of error. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting because the theologians back in that day, they're like, okay, you know, this is what we're supposed to believe in. And maybe we can find something in here where it could work, you know, but we'll be very like conservative about it. Nowadays, like, people see a loophole and they blow it up into like the, like the dam has been blown up and you can believe kind of whatever you want. Hmm. And so um, if that makes sense, that's what we're required to believe as Catholics. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And again, like, I'm not trying to, you know, we're not like a gotcha kind of channel, right? We, I think we're very fair and limited, <laughs> you know, the thing it's just, I just noticed like, I think that there's a kind of a pithy idea, very 20th century, you know, kind of late Catholicism, which is like, Oh, well we can synth we can square circles with like the modern world. And it's like, you know, obviously, like, we should have beliefs that, that do coincide with reality, you know. Um, there are records for some things that can hold up scrutiny. There's a lot of really exciting and cool things, and I'm I'm still figuring all out all the evidence out. Um, where I grew up, it was like, I learned evolution by randomization, which is very different than I think how most people think of evolution. Most people on the street just think of evolution as um, environmental, like, evolution by adapt adaptation. I probably would characterize right like oh mm -hmm. if i'm cold one day i'm going to grow a beard because my body will say i'm cold instead of being like if i'm cold um there might be nothing in my genetic code that's going to suddenly make me sprout hair all over the place in millions of years even with mutations that just might not happen um who boy there's so much there's so much we could do but i think i think this is a good capper um we'll have to have you on again just because chat chats are fun easy breezy uh, for our audience, if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to Nicholas's channel, which is The Traditional Thomist, both on YouTube and on Instagram. Um, I'll put the, the link down in the description. He has a really cool video of breaking down uh, the new mass, part one, I should say. And he's really also, good. You're also prepping a series on kind of giving us a summa and like a digestible read through. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, we're going to. So I have two ideas, right? One of the one is absolutely going to happen. It's basically going through the commentaries of Father Reginald Gary Legrand, the great anti-modernist of the 40s and 50s, and going through his commentaries on the Summa. So it's very like heady, but it's very good stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I'm floating around this idea. So if you guys really want it, put it in the, uh, the comments below. But I've thought about, look, everyone knows, right? The Bible on a Year podcast from like the level one no, was sort of Catholic, right? Good stuff, right? It's not bad, right? There's no yeah. problem in reading scripture. But I thought about, you know, it'd be kind of interesting. I'd have to prep this early, but doing the Zuma in your podcast, something like that, mm. you know, just reading bite-sized portions, because I personally believe everyone should read it at least once in their lifetime, right? It's a big undertaking, but, you know, do it, right? Go ahead and like put yourself out there. Uh, if I record it, you know, we'll see what happens. And so that's kind of what's up on the channel right now. Yo, that is tight, man. That's tight. So yes, please go ahead and go ahead and subscribe to Nick because obviously why wouldn't you? He's freaking brilliant. That's why we have him on. <laughs> if you like what we had to say, and let's be honest, we know that you did. The most important thing you can do is to pray for all of us and our families. Um, but also uh, liking and sharing this video is uber important. We love your comments. We get a lot of really good ones. We get a lot of people writing to us, don't we, Rudy? Like saying, hey, what's up? And this Which is really cool. Yeah. We really appreciate, you know, getting fan like fan mail and just fan reading mail. stuff that yeah. is just like so from the heart, you yeah. know, and, and it's it's really awesome. Sometimes yeah. it's just like people sharing their life with us or asking for advice or that sort of thing. So always welcome, you know, we're we're really approachable. So if you ever want to talk to us, you know, 
Yeah, you could just we're, email we're, us. There's just a couple or, guys. It's very easy, yeah. you know. And then if you want to support us a little bit further, you can see it's going to appear. Boom, look, magic. Uh, not really magic. That's a heresy. Sorry, Nick. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a Somebody Patreon. Somebody read too much Harry Potter. I know, right? Well, it's Warhammer, Rudy. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> next time, Nick discusses his untenable position on video games and why that's... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, but seriously, please, please, please consider supporting us on Patreon. That helps make the show run smoothly. It helps us pay essentially for both our podcasting hosting site as well as zoom and all these other kinds of things equipment you know if i can buy a box of wheat thins if rudy can buy diapers just hold up your child and just tell them rudy just tell them how much it hurts please <laughs> please the inflation is hurting us so oh my badly gosh. yeah a lot of cool little perks a lot of stuff we really do appreciate your support but your prayers of course are the most important i just i wanted to share with uh with our uh, our viewers i i haven't had time to actually sit down and do this because our, our schedule is so different now as i mentioned in the beginning of the video we're moving to houston and uh that's going to happen before uh, January 1st. So it's like, everything's moving real quick. I've started working at, uh, this is, this is the announcement. I've started working with uh, Catholic drive time. They're a very gracious, uh, radio station. Well, really it's a, it's a radio program that's syndicated across a, a bunch of different radio stations with the Guadalupe radio network. And, uh, they, they graciously had us on twice and then they liked what we had to say and they recruited me. So that's, that's why I'm moving to Texas. I'm going to be doing that. But in the meantime, I'm on Texas time. So I go to bed at 7 p.m. here, Pacific Standard Time. I wake up at two in the morning and then we do the radio show. So it's really awesome. I just wanted to just say, if you're, if you're interested in headline news, if you want to get some really interesting conversations, um, tune in. Tune in to uh, Catholic Drive Time. You can find us on the uh, Guadalupe Radio Network. So uh, anyway, I just God, wanted to plug God that. God be praised for that. I'm so, I'm so enormously proud of you. And Jordan uh, actually helped me get the job. I'm going to be 100%. I have to. I have to say, Jordan. That's right. Jordan. Get, Jordan was a linchpin. I get ten percent of his earnings. It's awesome. That's true. <laughs> I have a, I have a tithe to him. That's right. Yeah, you know, I'll link that down below. And like, you know, <laughs> we as the Gladhead Podcast have been on a couple times with Drive Time, so it's really cool that like finally, like you're like essentially like the next hot coming thing there. So um, I'll put a link. I'm down just below. glad that I work somewhere where there's not blasphemy. I know. God. God bless I'm working with Papis. That. That has, that'll be an episode we work on because I, I mean, I That's work at great. the Augustine Institute, so I got to tell you, it's nice like working with Catholics. It is so yeah, nice. It is. Um, it is. You know, well, for us, God bless you. May I keep you. We'll see you on the next one. Adios. All right.